Welcome to Talking Beats. I hope you'll subscribe and give us a five-star review on Apple, Spotify, or anywhere you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash talkingbeats. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash talkingbeats. We believe now more than ever in providing a platform for individuality, free thought, and a diverse range of views. By supporting the show this way, you'll get early access to episodes, bonus episodes, and much more. And remember, the conversation is always active at Talking Beats Podcast on social media. On today's program, former United States Ambassador to the Russian Federation, Michael McFall. He's the director at the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies, professor in the Political Science Department, and fellow at the Hoover Institution, all at Stanford University. His books include Russia's Unfinished Revolution, Political Change from Gorbachev to Putin, and most recently, From Cold War to Hot Peace, An American Ambassador in Putin's Russia. In the United States government, he served as special assistant to the president and senior director for Russia and Eurasian Affairs at the National Security Council before rising to the position of ambassador. I'm thrilled to have Ambassador Michael McFall with me now. Welcome, sir. Thanks for having me. Let's talk about Vladimir Putin. The common story, one that you reject, is a Putin of transactions. You describe him as a man of ideology. What do we get wrong? What does Washington get wrong, commonly, about Putin? Well, uh, that's the most important part, which is to say that I think there's a common perception, even to this day, that Russia's a declining power, uh, they're fading away, and Putin's all transactional, he doesn't care about ideas. Uh, and I think both of those assumptions are wrong. One is Russia is not a declining power. Uh, Russia is back and has way more capacity today, military capacity, even economic capacity, most certainly ideational capacity, cyber capacity, intelligence capacity than they had 20 years ago. And I think we need to wake up to that fact. And then second, uh, whether or not we like it or not, Putin most certainly thinks that he is engaged in an ideological struggle with the West. He looks to our system of government. He looks to Europe. Uh, and he has an alternative vision of the world. Uh, you know, and he said it very publicly, by the way. You don't need to read intelligence uh, cables to see this. Uh, he says that liberalism, you know, and I mean that in the European sense of the word, has died, is dead, is dying. And it needs to repl be replaced with a conservative, nationalist, orthodox set of ideas. And that means that he uh, considers himself as the leader of that, that ideological world, that illiberal world. And, you know, for about a decade, he started to invest in propagating those ideas abroad. Not many people paid much attention. But these days, he's investing a lot. And uh, I think we need to admit he's had some successes in winning over ideological allies uh, in Hungary, in Italy, uh, Le Pen in France, uh, Nigel Farage in, in the UK, and, and I think in many instances, uh, President Trump here in the United States. You mentioned the countries I was about to bring up because I want to go into Putin in more detail. But first, just zoom out, if you would. You're, you are a Russia expert. You also know a great deal about China, although I've heard you say uh, less about China than, than you do about Russia. But, but you certainly know a lot about both of those countries. Talk a little bit about Russia and it, it fitting in with 
with Erdogan, with Orban, with Bolsonaro uh, in Brazil, with Duterte all the way in the Philippines. What, what, what's, what's happening here? What, what waves are being ridden? And, and did Putin come along at just the right time? Yes. Uh, yes and yes, which is to say, and, and let's, let's back up. I, I like the, 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 you know, let's go up to 30,000 feet for a minute, which is to say, if you go back to 30 years ago, 1991, when the Soviet Union collapsed, uh, there was a common assumption in the world that democracy was the only political system that had any legitimacy and free markets was the only economic system. And there was a liberal international order that, that supported free markets, especially around the world. And today you see a backlash against that uh, in all those countries you just mentioned and, and, and more, which is to say that, you know, maybe this globalism was not such a great deal for everyone. And some people, and I would put Putin at the top of the list, have, have this, uh, made the argument we have an alternative way to organize our society, our political system, our economic system. And, and all those other countries, uh, you see the same sets of reaction against liberalism from 30 years ago. And by the way, I want to be clear. Some of it, I think, is, is justified. I think there was too much faith put into globalism and the free market uh, without thinking about the trade-offs and the winners and losers and growing inequality, uh, most certainly in my country, but are, across the globe, you see that. But I just don't think the solution for it is orthodox nationalism, uh, autocratic rule. Uh, so what Putin is offering, I think, is dangerous, uh, most certainly for his own country, but I would say for others that, that embrace that, that worldview. How do you think the history of Soviet Union becoming modern-day Russia morphing one to another affects the way the people of Russia view Putin. I imagine it's very different than the people of Brazil view Bolsonaro. Is, is, is Putin a continuation? Is he a relic? Is he the embodiment? Great question. Uh, most certainly that is one that is hotly debated in my uh, academic world. I, you know, and to oversimplify, there are, there are those that argue that he is continuity uh, Russia's always had autocrats. He's just the latest autocrat and uh, in a long line of, you know, uh, communist party leaders and czars. Uh, and, and this is a return to an equilibrium. I reject that view. I, I see a lot more discontinuity in Russian history over hundreds of years, but most certainly over the last 30 or 40. Um, and I don't, you know, let's remember that uh, at the end of the Soviet Union, Gorbachev was seeking to join the West and he didn't want confrontation with the liberal West. He wanted the Soviet Union to be a part of it. Uh, Boris Yeltsin, the first president uh, of an independent Russia for 10 years, was trying to build democracy and capitalism and join the West. And even Dmitry Medvedev, who was president in Russia from 2008 to 2012, you know, he doesn't get much attention anymore. We've forgotten about him. But when he was in power, and I dealt with him personally when I was in the government, both him and Mr. Putin, he most certainly had a more liberal pro-Western view uh, than Putin did. And on some occasions, they disagreed about some very big policy matters. We saw that up close and personal when I was in the government. Now, everything I just said to you, Putin doesn't want you to believe. Uh, Putin wants you to believe, and he spends a great deal of money to to propagate these ideas within his own country, he wants everybody to believe that, no, he is a return to Russian traditions 
and to the glory days when Russia was a revered, respected power in the international system. And I would just say, you know, he's been successful at that. I think we should uh, be clear that he is a successful politician. Number two, he did come along at exactly the right time and the right place, which is to say after 10 years of economic depression in the 90s, he became president rather accidentally, by the way. He, he wasn't chosen by the people of Russia. Uh, they ratified a choice made by Boris Yeltsin. Boris Yeltsin was the one that chose Putin. Uh, and right as he showed up, uh, 1999 as prime minister and then 2000 as first year as president, the Russian economy finally started to grow again, partly because of the necessary but painful reforms they did in the 90s, just like every other post-communist country had to do, and partly because of rising oil and gas prices that, that just happened right as Putin showed up as president, right? So very good timing. And those conditions would have helped another more democratically leaning leader too. I think that's an important thing for people to understand that, that had, say, Boris Nemtsov uh, been chosen by Yeltsin, and by the way, he was the heir apparent for Yeltsin for many years. And then because of a financial crash in 1998, uh, uh, Yeltsin decided to choose Putin instead. But had Nemtsov been named uh, the successor to Yeltsin, I think Russian history would have been radically differently. You talk about a fragmented Russian history. You talk about Putin not being a man of 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 his time in a way uh, is he a throwback when when is he a throwback too if he if he's not a man of his time in a sense and he he didn't really make sense coming with yeltsin where does he belong yeah that's a great question and i want to be humble and not knowing the answer because i don't think we'll know the answer for decades to come right uh if if putinism survives for 30 or 40 years we'll see a lot of continuity if it doesn't, then we'll see him as the last hurrah of the ancient regime, right, of the old order. Um, and let's remember a few important facts about his history. He joined the KGB that was dedicated to defending the Soviet Union. He was committed to that assignment, and he lamented the collapse of the Soviet Union, which he in part blames on the West. But he's also an opportunist. Uh, I think that's also important to remember that during the 90s, he didn't join up with the Russian Communist Party, uh, and he didn't join up with the uh, Liberal Democratic Party of Russia, the, the Nationalist Party that Mr. Zhirinovsky runs. He aligned himself with the Liberal Democrats. He worked for Anatoly Subchak in St. Petersburg, one of the most democratic pro-Western leaders of that, that time. And then he moved to Moscow to work for Boris Yeltsin. He was not part of the opposition back then. And it's only been... You know, once he became president, that we've seen what are his true colors. Um, and I would say there's been an evolution of that, by the way. He's never been for democracy. He's always been against democracy. But with respect to relations with the West and markets, he has become more anti-market and anti-West over time. And I see that as a throwback. I see that as somebody who's nostalgic for the old Soviet days. And, you know, I think there'll be a lot of debate about inside Russia about Russia's long-term future uh, at the end of the Putin era. I don't think there'll be a lot of continuity, but that's a hard, I'm just, I'm speculating there. I don't want to pretend that I know the future. I won't hold you to it, but you'd have a better shot of knowing than a lot of people, which is why I asked you. Talk about this sort of unchallenged aspect. You, it, it seems 
if I read between the lines of what you're saying, that Putin is is doing nothing if not getting bolder, uh, talk about the past couple of years, four years, this American administration, uh, and then, again, zoom out if you could uh, and, and talk about the emboldening, if that's a fair word to use it, or the the brazenness of Putin. I think those are the right words, and I think there are a number of factors at play. Number one, he's been in power for 20 years, right? So you get arrogant if you've been around for 20 years. You think you know everything, um, and you don't have any equals. That was already apparent to me uh, when we first met, you know, as a government official, when I first met with Prime Minister Putin and President Obama back in July 2009, uh, he has a swagger to him and arrogance, you know, that I know everything and nobody knows anything else. And that's real. That that's that's not just what what the media portrays. You you sensed it. You felt. Oh it. yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And he doesn't listen to his advisors anymore either. By the way, he, you know, back when he first became president, and he didn't know a lot about diplomacy, and he most certainly didn't know a lot about the economy. He had a pretty strong team around him. These are people I've known for for decades, and he would listen to their advice, uh, and he would defer to their advice and follow their advice. 20 years later, he's surrounded by sycophants, right? He's, he's not, there's nobody that will push back on his ideas, uh, especially about foreign policy. So that's, that's one uh, factor at play here. Uh, number two, uh, he, the Russian state has more capacity to do things abroad than they had back in 2000. So that's another thing. And number three, there hasn't been much pushback lately. He annexed territory in Ukraine, uh, violating one of the most sacred principles of our post-war uh, international system. You know, we, we fought World War II in part be- to stop annexation. He did that, and he, you know, he paid some costs, but, but he thought, you know, all things considered, it was a good trade. Then he invaded, you know, he went into Syria to support the most horrible dictator of our time. Uh, didn't pay much of a cost there. Uh, then he violated American sovereignty in 2016. You know, what is more sacred to the American people than choosing our leaders uh, independent of foreign actors? And yet there he was. And he didn't pay much of a price for that. And, and, and that's in large measure because our current president, President Trump, has never pushed back on Vladimir Putin. Um, and so that emboldens him to do more, including, you know, most recently, uh, supporting the Taliban, maybe even uh, providing bounties to Taliban uh, shooters to kill Americans, as has been reported uh, in numerous uh, papers, not just the New York Times. And then, you know, most recently, uh, he's it looks like they have poisoned the leading opposition figure there, Alexei Navalny. Those are all instances and used the same agent, by the way. Again, we need to know the details. I don't want to get ahead of my skis, but uh, the agent that was used is called Novacek. It's the same nerve agent that was used to try to kill uh, Sergei Skripal in the United Kingdom. If I could just interject very briefly, the day this happened, I had Malcolm Nance on just by coincidence, and he predicted it was Novacek. He said, uh, if I had to take a bet, this is what I would bet. So I, I, I'm glad Malcolm was right. I'm not surprised. Wow, okay. Well, he's a smart guy. Well, here we are again. Uh, Navalny has been reported from the German doctors. It looks like the agent was used. And and that's just a, you know, that is somebody that is brazen, bold, uh, aggressive, belligerent. And, you know, so far, the leader of the free world, the United States of America, has not done enough to deter 
those kinds of actions by Vladimir Putin. You know, you bring up Navalny. I wanted to talk about Navalny. I wanted to talk about the response from Angela Merkel, the sort of less of a response from the United States. Uh, but, but first, I just wanted to put a finer point on what's been allowing Putin to accelerate his aggression regarding the West, regarding the United States. And a lot of the offenses that you mentioned happened before the Trump administration. And, and it's years and years of, of, his, of his being unchecked or unchallenged in a hearty enough manner. Is time uh, showing us, in retrospect, that we missed the boat earlier on? Uh, yes, I think that's, I think that's fair, uh, which is to say, and I would go right back to 2000. I remember very vividly, in fact, I wrote a piece in the Washington Post uh, about Vladimir, P- President-elect Vladimir Putin's uh, warning about his autocratic ways. And one of the arguments in that piece is uh, we in the West and those within Russian society should push back now because farther down the road, it'll be harder. And I think that's an important other uh, piece to the puzzle, which is to remember that uh, part of the reason Putin can do these things abroad is that he is empowered with a, a much more autocratic system today in Russia than 20 years ago. You know, first and foremost, let's let's let Russians be accountable for that, too. I, I have many friends uh, from that earlier period that say in retrospect, they didn't push hard enough back on Putin and they they were indifferent to his autocratic ways. And the economy was growing. So, you know, maybe it was no, not such a big deal. And he cut their taxes, by the way. Um, you know, note some parallels to, to our situation in, in, in our country. And so that was a good enough deal for them at the time. In retrospect, when they had more power back then, maybe they would have failed, but they most certainly talk amongst themselves like they missed an opportunity to, to check his aggressiveness. Uh, and I think the same is true with the West. And I want to be clear, it's not easy to check the aggression of powerful autocratic countries in the world. Uh, that's not that's true today. And that's been true in the 20th century and the 19th century. It's not easy. I do applaud what Angela Merkel and uh, President Obama and the rest of Europe did. I think in 2014, maybe it was too, you know, it should have been done earlier. I, I uh, that may be true. But what they did do then is decide that we had to have a policy of containment and they put in place uh, real reforms to strengthen NATO. And I applaud that. And I'm glad that the Trump administration has uh, continued that. And they put in place the most comprehensive set of economic sanctions against Putin and Putin's regime ever in the history of U.S.-Russian relations. That was the right thing to do. But it hasn't been enough. And, and I think, uh, you know, uh, President Trump uh, and the rest of the, the free world need to think more strategically about how to contain uh, Putin's regime today. You mentioned NATO, and I was going to bring up NATO. The reinvigoration of NATO, if this happens, if it happened hypothetically, uh, what would it do to Putin? Would, would, would a serious reinvigoration be threatening, be menacing enough? Or, or is Putin, as you said, sort of on a steamroller now? Well, I, I do think the deterrence capability of NATO has already been enhanced over the last several years. And I applaud that. That's the right thing to do. There are 
NATO soldiers, including American soldiers, closer to Russia's borders than they were in 2014. That's the right thing to do, especially helping to uh, increase our deterrent capability in the Baltic states. That's the right thing to do. Uh, I also believe uh, NATO has a long ways to go in terms of enhancing that deterrent capability because the Russian conventional buildup on those borders, I think, is uh, not well known to lots of Americans, but has been quite substantial. Uh, Putin has invested a lot into modernizing his both his conventional forces and nuclear forces. Um, and I worry uh, about the balance of power in Europe today. Uh, so I think more needs to be done. And in particular, you know, it's a phrase that, that Ronald Reagan coined, and I think it's appropriate for today, peace through strength. We want to reduce the uncertainty about our commitment to our NATO allies. Uh, because if Putin thinks that there's some, you know, fuzziness there that we might not protect our allies, he might be tempted to go to war against a NATO ally. And that, that is my, my biggest worry. What country could that be? Here are the two scenarios, right? Um, it won't be a conventional war. That's what I think people always forget. It's not, we're not going to see Russian tanks rolling into Tallinn. But here's a scenario. Here's two scenarios. There's a city called Narva uh, on the eastern border of Estonia. It's mostly populated by ethnic Russians, but uh, Estonian citizens. Uh, they live in Estonia. What happens if, you know, a bunch of young men get in a fight and some Russians are killed? ethnic Russians are killed in the country of Estonia. And Putin decides to send his special forces in to seek to avenge those deaths. And they kill some Estonians. And then they go home. What do we do then? That's a scenario I worry about. Now, my colleagues in Estonia uh, say that I'm underestimating uh, their capabilities to deter such a uh, intrusion on their border. And that may be true. I'm not an expert on that border. But that's a scenario I would be worried about, and I would be worried about uh, how we respond, because if we don't respond as a, a unified uh, alliance, that will underscore and begin to sow division within NATO. Here's another scenario I worry about. I'm not even going to name the country because I don't want to get you know, uh, feedback from countries that, that I don't want to insult anybody, but, but just any NATO ally in the Balkans. Most Americans don't even could not even name our allies in the Balkans, right? What if there's a coup in one of those countries and they're pro-Russian forces that take over in a NATO country, a NATO, a member of NATO? What do we do? What's our game plan then? Those are the kind of testing scenarios that I think we need to uh, reduce. We can't get them to zero, but we want them to be a lot lower today in Putin's imagination. And that requires that we stand with NATO, not just berate NATO, as the president does all the time, but we make clear that we value our NATO allies and that we will stand with them no matter what. As Article 5 of the NATO treaty says, an attack on one is an attack on all. And we need to restore our credible commitment to the NATO alliance today. I think it is, it's been tarnished and there's uncertainty. And that uncertainty breeds the possibility of miscommunication vis-a-vis -vis Moscow. Ambassador Michael McFall, I'm going to take you in another direction briefly, because as you know, this is Talking Beats, and I talk to everybody a little bit about music, whether or not they're a musician. I know you have some music in your family, and I know, in fact, that when you were ambassador, you had American musicians 
play at the residence in Moscow to show that uh, America is a culturally rich country, which it is. Talk about music and your life. Well, yeah, uh, yes. My father uh, was a, a high school band director, and then he quit and went on the road in the in the early 70s and was a musician on the road for 30 years, uh, playing all over the country, different genres of music. Uh, so I grew up around music. Um, I also was a musician uh, as a younger man, uh, played the trumpet for a while in jazz bands and then guitars and pianos and all kinds of rock and roll incarnations over the years. Uh, so it was one of the great treats of my life, honestly, to be the U.S. ambassador in Russia and to have as my job, it was my job to bring American musicians uh, to Russia, sometimes you know directly through the embassy, sometimes in partnerships with other groups, and then go to their performances from time to time, and then have them perform at my house from time to time. You know, like like Herbie Hancock performed in my house <laughs> you know, for seven hundred of my friends. Somebody I listened, listened to as a kid. You know, his music was really influential to me when I was a high school trumpet player and there he was performing in my house that was a, a remarkable evening in so many ways um, but it was also remarkable because music really is uh, a transnational language that brings together societies irrespective of their the differences of their governments uh, and I'll, I'll tell you two anecdotes if I can um, one of the very first events I attended uh, and now I'm going to forget the group, but it was a, a gospel choir group from Alabama. They performed, you know, there's probably 3,000 Russians there. Towards the end of the evening, uh, they sang Amazing Grace. These were fantastic musicians, by the way, just absolutely fantastic. You could not feel prouder as an American to listen to them in a, an audience in Moscow. But they started to sing Amazing Grace, and Russians spontaneously just stood up and started singing with them, but in Russian. So they were singing the same song in two different languages. By the end of that, the entire place was singing together. And it was it was just a great uh, celebration of music, but a great celebration of American music. Uh, and then the second one I want to tell you about, because uh, this is really personal, it was arranged before me, before I got to Moscow, but one of the first concerts we had in Spaso House, where the American ambassador lives, fantastic house, by the way, I've been there. The John Barely, my family knew very well. I've been to the house. I've seen, in fact, when I was a kid, I saw a concert there. Barely wasn't the ambassador yet. He was the deputy. Uh, so he was living in the American compound. Uh, but it was a Russian orchestra, believe it or not. I know it was. Uh, sorry to tell you. <laughs> but it was at the uh, on that uh, wonderful big stage in that grand room uh, in that in that residence. So you know exactly what I'm talking about. Yes, that uh, in the ballroom there. Absolutely. I was a freshman in high school. Wow, that's fantastic. That's a great story. Well, I came on just right after Ambassador Byerly, uh, and I was the new guy on the block, and I was not a professional diplomat, of course. So the, the protocol officer, as we were getting ready for this concert, uh, and it was, a mon it was a band from Montana. It was a country western band. Wiley and the Cowboys, I think. If my memory serves me right, I'll look it up and send it to you later. But and this is your home state, your your home oh, state, yeah, of Montana. Yeah, so these are from Montana, where I grew up, and um, I was really excited to see them come. Uh, and I went down to that grand ballroom that you just described, and there was no space for dancing. 
and I went to the people in charge of the event and I said, well, where are people going to dance? And they said, well, Mr. Ambassador, uh, we don't dance at Spasso House. This is a concert. Some very serious people will be here. Um, you know, they were, I'm the new guy, you know, I don't know about the diplomacy. And I was like, oh, you know, this is a group from Montana. And um, I can tell you from my, my father's time as a musician, there was nothing more insulting to my father than to play in a bar for four hours and have, you know, especially when he's playing country music and to have people sit on their hands for four hours, right? That's highly deflating for him. And his partner, Kip and Bo, was the name of their duo uh, towards the end of his career. And so I said, you know, I mean, you know, my, my guess is that these guys would like us to dance. And so we argued. Finally, we cleared out like four rows of chairs as a compromise. And they, they played and it was great music, fantastic music. Nobody danced. And so finally, I convinced my wife, like, you know, we got we to gotta show some leadership here. And I don't do a great two-step, but I know how to do the two-step. And uh, we got up and did that. <laughs> That's great. And within 45 seconds, 300 Russians uh, had kicked the chairs to the sides and had joined us. And they don't know how to do the two-step very well either, by the way. It was pretty raucous. But it was just this great moment where, you know, diplomats, members of parliament, you know, supporters of Putin, opposition figures from Russia, civil society leaders – all were spontaneously by, uh, on the dance floor, forgetting about all our differences. And uh, it was just a very incredible moment. It was a great moment to be an American. I love that story. I, I love both those stories. I've been all around the world playing concerts, playing cello concerts, and I always run into people, two kinds of people. One, they've been listening to classical music and music their entire lives, and they're aficionados. And the other uh, is, is the kind of person who I have to practically drag into the hall. I say, here's a ticket. All you have to do is show up. And if you really hate it, the worst that happens is you hate it. An hour and a half goes by and you never come back. That's the worst that happens. And these people have never heard classical music or ever in their lives. They hear it and they say, where has this been my whole life? And it really is the great unifier. doesn't matter language or anything. I mean, a Beethoven symphony has the same meaning if it's played in Chicago or Shanghai or anywhere in between. Well, and to that point, it's another thing. It's a sign of respect, too. Uh, another moving experience that I had, uh, the Chicago Symphony Orchestra came to Moscow in my first year as ambassador, and they played at the, the main concert hall in Russia. Uh, and, you know, Russians always think of us Americans as not being too cultured, but they came in and they played Shostakovich. And that's, uh, you know better than I, that's a hard, that the, the, I can't remember off the top of my head what they played, but it was a very difficult piece. I, by the way, was sitting next to Shostakovich's last wife. Um, uh, I think he had three wives, but she was there. Um, and I was like, oh my goodness, I, I didn't know she was going to be there. Uh, I hope these Americans get it right. And boy, did they get it right. And that place again, it just, you know, 3,000, 4,000 people just exploded because it was such a sign of respect that these Americans came to their country to play one of their composers. And, and you know, the, it was a very emotional moment for, in Russian-American relations. A composer highly identified with Russia, uh, one of the great composers, Shostakovich, of the 20th century, of, of all music history. And uh, and that concert must have taken place in the Great Hall at the Tchaikovsky Conservatory in Moscow. It did. You know, so you've probably been there too, right? You bet. 
<laughs> That's fantastic. Uh, be- beautiful place, beautiful hall that is. Yes. Ambassador McFall, there's a lot going on, obviously, right now around the world in the United States between social movements, between the virus, between the election. What stories regarding Russia are we missing right now that we should be talking about? What isn't getting covered for certain reasons that that should be? What are you concerned about that you want to ring the bell about? Wow, that's a great question. Probably the, the, there are two things. One's in Russia and one's in Belarus, which is you have had this uh, out in Khabarovsk, a, a city in Siberia, uh, an amazing explosion of civic activism. Uh, and the story there is a complicated one, but there was an, a, a governor elected from a quasi-opposition party called the Liberal Democratic Party of Russia from Mr. Zhirinovsky. He's actually very loyal to Putin, but he's not part of Putin's party. He, and, but he was elected and it was a somewhat surprising election. And then Putin removed him and replaced him with somebody else. He just appointed him. In other words, you know, just violating the rights of those that had elected this this governor. And nobody thought much of it except for the people of Khabarovsk. And they've come out and they've protested, you know, going on for months now, protesting this act. And I think it's important for a couple of reasons. One, it shows that people are not as fearful of Mr. Putin as they may have once been. And it's hard to protest if you're just 50 people or five, right? Because you can be arrested easily. But when you're 100,000, it's a lot easier and it makes it a lot harder for those repressing these kind of demonstrations to act against them. And and it's a, another thing I think is important to look at is it's not the old liberal, you know, traditional folks that do these protests out in Habaras. It's a lot of young people, uh, a lot of working class people. Uh, it's a different demographic than we are used to. And that, to me, is a sign that that maybe more people are getting tired of Putin than we are led to believe by what we can read in the press. Right. Uh, and then second, of course, is Belarus. The same thing's going on there. Uh, election was stolen. And we've had all these cliches about how Belarusians are passive and they don't care about democracy and they love the strong hand. I mean, this is all the propaganda that's been swirling for decades now about Russians and Belarusians. And here we've had this explosion of political activity. Despite all the violence and arrests, it's still happening. And I don't know how things will end in Belarus. I don't know how things will end in Khabarovsk. Uh, But I think it, both these events really undermine this conventional wisdom about how you know, people in that part of the world just love dictators and they're willing to to go along with dictators. I think we're seeing signs that that is not necessarily going to be true for forevermore. Evermore meaning decades from now we could see a change or you think sooner? You know, I, we're not very good in political science about predicting autocratic breakdown. I would also say as somebody who served in the government for five years that the uh, intelligence community is also not very good at these the predicting these things, they tend to happen. And then there's a lot of contingency that happens, right? Um, So I don't know. Uh, I do know that, you know, nobody predicted that Milosevic would fall in 2000. And suddenly because of a stolen election there, hundreds of thousands uh, rebelled and he did fall. Uh, That happened in Ukraine again in 2004. Uh, It just happened in Malawi, by the way. Nobody's paid any attention to Malawi. It just literally happened there over the last couple of years. And so I just think we should be humble 
in knowing when to predict these things, but but we tend to overestimate stability and equilibrium uh, in our predictions about the future. And I remember this very vividly uh, during my time at the White House uh, when we were reacting to the events of the Arab Spring. If you'll recall, in 2011, there were massive protests against uh, autocrats throughout the region there, which has not ended very well. But in 2011, I remember very vividly listening to, you know, experts on Egypt who would say, well, there's never going to be any change here because that'll never happen. It's an autocratic regime. And for 99% of one's career, uh, you could have predicted that and been right for 30 years. But then there's that 1% of time when you got it wrong. Uh, Again, I'm not going to pretend I know the future of Russia or Belarus, but I think it's a cautionary tale for those that think that there will never be change in these countries. And the last thing I'll say on that, just again, putting on my social science hat, Belarus and Russia are two of some of the richest, most educated societies in the world that are still ruled by autocrats. Over time, there's a correlation between what we call modernization, political and economic modernization, and democratization. It's pretty robust, that correlation. We don't know when it happens, but there, you rarely you get to, to have uh, people as rich and educated uh, as Russia and Belarus is, and autocrats still stay in power. Um, and there, that to me is another indicator that, you know, I don't, I, you know, what's the, the more radical prediction that Putinism will be, uh, ensconced in Russia in 20 years or that something will replace it. I think the first prediction is the more radical of those two. Would you like to be ambassador once again? Uh, yeah, I mean, I love being ambassador. It was a, it was a job of a lifetime and uh, obviously in a country that I knew well. I'd lived in Russia and the Soviet Union many years of my life. Some of my closest friends in in life are Russians, and I have a deep respect for Russian culture and history and, and feel very comfortable living in that country. Uh, I'm now banned. I've, I am now you know part of the sanctions tit for tat, so I cannot travel to Russia these days. But if I ever had the chance under new conditions to serve again, yeah, I, I would welcome that opportunity. Yes. Ambassador Michael McFall, thank you so much for your terrific insights and fresh opinions. It's much appreciated. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. You've been listening to Talking Beats with Daniel Lalchuk. I hope you'll subscribe and leave a review on Apple, Spotify, or anywhere you get your podcasts. The original theme music for this program is by Ronald Markham. The content coordinator is Nathaniel Mosse. Doug Christian is the executive producer. I'm Daniel Lalchuk. See you next time.